Welcome to Protecting Your Assets, the show about protecting people, property, and most importantly, protecting your ass. I'm your host, Lucky Luciano, and I'd like you to join me for a fast-paced and often fiery discussion about security issues with my co-host, Brian the Angry Man Claimer. Whether we're piercing the veil of security, talking your duty of care, or raving about the latest technology, we'll share our thoughts on the issues, the trends that are impacting security today and into the future. So grab a coffee and join us for our latest podcast. And don't forget to like and follow us on our sponsor's website, brianclayman.com. And now let's talk about protecting your assets. Hello, folks, and welcome back to Protecting Your Assets. We've been a little on a, an unplanned hiatus over the last couple of weeks, but we are back, and we've got a special guest today, Chris Fernandez, um, who we will get into with a proper introduction momentarily. But before then, I'm going to welcome back my side uh, sidekick, co-host, Brian the Angry Man Clayman. How have you been doing these last few weeks, and uh, what's keeping you up these days? Well, really good, trying to stay cool, hoping the air conditioning uh, system doesn't crap out. So I thought, as I've said the last several uh, times we've done this, that I want to transition from what keeps me up from COVID to other things. But I find myself back at COVID. And I'll just take a few seconds. What sort of concerns me is, you know, we are looking at the the, the thought was that, you know, society would reopen up, the downtown business core would reopen up maybe this September after Labor Day. Just as we thought last year, September 2020 was the target date, and that didn't work out because we had a third wave. Well, fast forward, history repeating itself, we now have a fourth wave, they say, is uh, starting to raise its ugly head in Ontario. So I don't know what that does for the uh, reopening of the downtown core. I don't know if that gets put off again. And I sort of, what keeps me up at night is just thinking of my friends in commercial real estate and the industry and the downtown core. I don't think it's going to look the same when this is all over. I mean, I think the economy will do well. I think people will do well. But I don't know if they're going to be situated in the same geographic area. And instead of 200,000 people being in the financial district, maybe they're going to be up in North York or in Scarborough or in York Region. I think it's going to look, the landscape's going to look different. And uh, uh, there's going to be a lot of disruption. And uh, I'm concerned about that, what that looks like in terms of jobs, uh, are, you know, buildings under development right yeah. now and so on. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and I'm not going to get into COVID because, uh, as I said in previous episodes, I'm sick and tired of talking about COVID. And we don't have a plan to go forward. So we're just going to play it by ear, I think, like most politicians are doing. Um, so with that, I'm going to, first of all, uh, formally introduce um, Chris Fernandez, our guest today, before I respond to my what's keeping me up at night. Uh, and that way we can turn it right over to Chris if he wants to weigh in on what we're talking about or we'll go right into our topic, we can do that. So for everyone who's listening, uh, Chris Fernandez is a retired police officer with over 32 years of law enforcement experience. He spent 28 of those years with the Toronto Police Service, attaining the rank of superintendent. And in that capacity, he was the commander of three units, the Toronto Anti-Violence Intervention Strategy Unit, also known as TAVIS. Uh, the Transit Patrol Unit, and the Community Mobilization Unit, which is going to be, you know, all three of those units will play uh, an integral part of today's discussion as we talk about the overlay or the integration between public and private sectors and how they, they relate to each other. Um, during the last four years of his career, he was actually the Deputy Chief of the Police, uh, sorry, he was actually the Deputy Chief of Police with the Durham Regional Police Service, uh, where he oversaw a police service of over 700 officers and civilians and managed the budget of over $100 million. 
which seems like a lot, but compared to Toronto, <laughs> I think they're up at around a billion dollars, which just tells you the sa- the scale is unbelievable. Um, he recently transitioned to the private sector and is presently overseeing the security program for a property management company in downtown Toronto. So before I, I uh, turn it over to you, Chris, to say some words, I have to respond to my good friend Brian as usual and and uh, give him my two cents on what's keeping me up at night because it ain't COVID. Uh, like I say, I'm sick and tired of COVID. What's really pissing me off really is the, the lack of government engagement again with those Canadians over in China. There's another Canadian now facing an upgrade in his uh, sentence from, uh, from life in prison now to execution, basically. Um, and it's funny how the timing coincides with the hearings with the um, the executive from uh, from the J- uh, Chinese firm that uh, wants to be extradited over to to the U.S. So I, I think you know it's very disappointing to see our government play nice in the sandbox with uh, with a, a company or sorry a country that uh, obviously doesn't play by the same rules. And uh, you know we've got our own citizens suffering because of it. So it's it's really disappointing, and that's where my head's been at the last couple of days. So on that crappy note <laughs> i'm going to turn it over to chris um where we're going to continue the conversation you're more than welcome obviously to talk about either of those two issues or something else that's bothering you in recent weeks um but our discussion today is going to really be about uh, continuing the conversation on are we ready for the 21st century are the police ready for 21st century policing even though we're in 2021 um it's still a relatively new century and it has changed considerably over the last few months especially probably the last two years um with all the you know, the, the, the diversity movements in the U.S., uh, the, the community, um, the defund the police movement. There's a lot of things going on that are making policing very difficult. And that's going to transition into the private sector and the security officers that need to deal with that. So that's my intro for you, Chris. Welcome. Uh, we're happy to have you and really excited for uh, for, for talking to you today. Uh, thanks. Uh, thanks, Luciano. Thanks, Brian. Um yeah, just a comment in regards to the 21st century policing. And uh, you think when you retire that uh, you forget about policing or you don't care. Um, but, you know, after spending over 32 years policing and starting at, you know, as a kid at 21 years of age, uh, it's in your heart and, you know, it, it doesn't leave. So, you know, all the, the things that you see and that's happened in policing over the last uh, little while, even though I've been gone from it for almost three years, uh, still has that effect. You know, so, um, you know, that's something that's near and dear to my heart and probably some some of the things that keeps me up at night. Brian, I, I, I just take a deep breath. I know you want to sort of monopolize <laughs> this part. So. Monopolize it. I was just going to start into the questions because um, because, Chris, it's it's one thing that I didn't say in your intro. And I think it's important for for uh, for our listeners to, to know is that you, unlike many other police officers, and I'm certainly not slamming police officers because my brother's still a police officer. I did it myself for a number of years and I support them 100%. But uh, a lot of them seem to think that, you know, they retire and they transition to the private sector and it's sort of a, a, a free pass, for lack of a better word. You know, I've done my policing, so I know everything. And, and I'd like to think that you are one of those... Um, few officers who transitioned to the private sector and actually took the time to educate yourself on the security world. I believe you've got your CPP. I'm not 100% sure yeah. on that. Yes, I do. Um, yeah. yeah, you know, and, and that's congratulations on that. But that's to me, is an indication of where your head's at and someone who's always willing to learn to um, expand his his knowledge base and not presume that he knows everything just because you carried a gun and a badge for, for 32 years. So I think that that's something that needs to be recognized. 
um, and it brings a unique perspective when it comes from you because you you can speak to both sides in competency, understanding and, those issues. And I'm going to pretend I'm the prosecutor right now or the judge. <laughs> Is there a question in there, Mr. Sidney? Oh my God, I was just trying to give you some some background. And we only have 45 minutes as to his the the, the views he brings to the table. Okay, so let's well, get you know, into Luch, just well, just just a comment on that, like a uh, um, and a plug for security professionals um, that I've had the opportunity to be part of, you know, in Toronto back as uh, early as 2005, 2006, um, you know, I was introduced to the private security world, you know, with yourself and Brian and, you know, some other uh, um, professional security folks. And, and you know, as you know, we uh, we work together on with Toronto Police and 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 security, private public security, with uh, you know the Toronto Association of Police and Private Security program, and you know it was a great partnership and a, a great initiative. But uh, through all those years, uh, I learned a lot uh, from you guys when it comes to um, you know the security side and how professional it was, how dedicated it was, and you know the commitment that you guys brought when it came to the protection of you know your assets, your people, your property, and your you know, in your buildings that you that you oversaw. So um, it was something that I was always interested in as time went on. And you're right, uh, before I left policing, I pursued my CPP and uh, obtained that. And presently um, studying for my PSP just to continue that, that knowledge of learning more about the technology part of it. So, um, you know, but in saying all that, um, it's not an easy transition because uh, policing is policing and private security. There's yeah. a lot to learn. So I think for me, uh, I'm new um, in this uh, in this area in the private sector. There's a lot to learn. Um, you know, I've leaned on people like Brian and others, uh, you know, to, to get me up to speed. But, uh, you know, this is a new place where I'm kind of earning my keep and, and, you know, gaining respect. And it's not, I think you're right. Luch, you just don't flip over and think you know it all when it come, when you have, have had a policing career. Yeah. So. Well, yeah, and Chris, you're sort of in a unique position because you've been on both sides of the fence. And I just want to add to what you said when you were with Toronto Police and running the task program or outreach at 52 Division with the security community. You were a great ambassador of the Toronto Police. Like you opened our eyes in terms of what the police can do and what they can't do. We hopefully opened your eyes about what our world was like, and we were able to work uh, collaboratively and, and support each other. And, and that's an important part of success is partnerships. And you just don't see that consistently happening across the board. And that's, we got to get back to that. Yeah, it's interesting you say that, Brian, because I, I had a call this morning with uh, someone, uh, a security manager downtown. He's, he's operating a new property. And uh, he knows Chris as well. He's been down there for a long time. I, I'm not going to mention his name because I don't have his permission. I don't want to presume that he wants to be noted. But the key thing that came out of that was the fact that now that he's getting back to business downtown, there is an absence of those groups. He, you know, he didn't recall. He didn't. He couldn't recall who the safe group was. Uh, couldn't recall Tavis. He remembers the name, but hasn't seen them in eons because they're not around. Um, you know, Taps is long dead. Um, and, and it's sad to see that. And not to say that those were the days type discussion, but really the question is, Chris, what were the challenges on the policing side to get support for those units? Because it wasn't consistent, hasn't been consistent. It really depended on who was leading those units at the time in terms of their success. At least that's been my um, opinion and, uh, and uh, uh, perception. 
Um, and then now that you've come over to the other side, what are things that the private sector can do better to reinvigorate those groups, to reestablish those partnerships? Because now, if any, a time is is needed for those groups to be back in play. It's now. We're getting back into a downtown core that nobody really knows what to expect. To Brian's point, what's it going to look like? We don't really know, but we do know that it's gotten a lot uglier since since everyone's sort of left the downtown core. We've got people in need, mental health issues, all kinds of things going on down there that I don't think people really understand the severity of some of those issues that exist. Yeah, so I think with the with the TAPS program, uh, you know, that partnership um, worked well for many years, and I think it had good leadership because it had people, uh, my boss, and I don't want to mention any names, but my boss at, at that time, um, you know, the deputy chief believed in the program and believed in that partnership. So I think it, it needs that executive sponsor from the police side, that person that believes in the partnership, right? And I think at the time, we all believe like, you know, when you're in the policing, it's, it's what's in it for me. So if I partner with you, what's in it for me? So what's in it for policing is um, that professional security side of more eyes, more awareness, um, you know, to, to be able to work together, especially in the downtown core, but anywhere like the GTA and having those partnerships. So, you know, the seamless communication, training, um, intelligence sharing, uh, that we're working together. So uh, everybody's getting what they want from that relationship, right? So if you don't feel you're, you're, uh, you're gaining anything, I think, you know, human nature from, from that relationship um, why am I partnering with you? If you're getting 90% of the benefit and I'm only getting 10%, talking to the police side again, um, where's the benefit? So there was a belief for many years that there was a great benefit for to have that partnership when it came to the information sharing, the intelligence sharing, and you know, going through uh, events like the G20 in 2010 and working with that partnership to you know, ensuring safety and security for the, the downtown core. So the police can't you know, thousands of police officers downtown, you still can't protect everyone and yep. every place. So there's a, a dependence on the that partnership of the security directors, um, you know, that, that had, you know, the the ownership or the accountability for those buildings to work together to make sure that we had that seamless security. So um, what's lacking now, I think, is again, maybe um, just that awareness, maybe executive leadership from the police again to refocus on what's important. Partnerships are important because I know every day police agencies are working on the partnerships, whether it's social agencies or 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 whatever it is, communities, diverse communities. But it's that importance of why is security, the security industry important to policing. And we have to get back to that. And we have to have, I think, someone sponsoring it from that end. From the security side now, I think we just need um, that leadership to see the worth in it, right? Because if you've seen something like TAPS that's maybe deteriorated in, in, in the program over the years, is like, um, is it worth putting in all that work? And are we going to get to the benefit that we want? And I think right now maybe enough security leaders may, may think, and it's not a, a knock on anybody, or it, it's just... Is it worth to put in that work because are we going to get to where we want to go? And maybe we just need um, us together to develop a plan, a strategic plan on how we approach the police in this instant Toronto police and in getting that partnership back to uh, like a strong level like we had years ago.
Well, okay. I, I just want to add to that because, you know, I think partnerships and successful partnerships are the cornerstone of successful programs. So, Chris, I want to ask you, how has policing changed from when you started 3,000 years ago to today? <laughs> and I would imagine those changes are probably driving the need for more effective partnerships. But how's it changed? When you started as a young constable at 21 years of age, what type of things did you worry about? What was the city of Toronto like? How did the community relate to you versus what you're seeing today, both in Canada and the States? Yeah, good question, Brian. And yeah, it was. It feels like a, you know, a lifetime ago. It was 1986, right? And policing, um, you know, was different then. There was, uh, I would say, the accountability systems weren't in place that that we have now. Uh, obviously, you know, um, I know even in your time, Polaroid cameras were probably, you know, just invented, right? But <laughs> but but they're really. Was, the, 1986 was I born then <laughs> but they're the really uh, the oversight and the accountability and and the the media presence the cameras the social media um, wasn't there and Toronto at the time um, you know wasn't as diverse in the communities that there was so it was uh, you know back then you felt that you had um, a very high percentage of public trust and confidence from the community and you felt that you're doing you know you're doing well but again um that accountability piece wasn't there so like the evolution of policing and it's not a bad thing it's made policing i think more professional yeah. um the training and the education and the equipment has just evolved i think to a high level um you know i think the police industry is a you know you're a professional like you're a lawyer or a security director or a, an accountant um it's a professional profession right and and um it's it was a good evolution but because of that evolution now uh you know with social media and you know different communities that uh maybe have had um you know a lack of trust in the police and different you know in their you know their wherever they're from you know their ethnic origins um you know that have now moved to Toronto and I speak in Toronto it's, it's a very diverse community and and it's a good thing you know um, but you would agree yeah. Chris part of the evolutionary process was there was a lot of introspection on the part of the police on the part of the community towards the police and the police in many regards would you not think reinvented themselves through training as you said use of technology outreach communications with uh, the public but no matter what has occurred in the last five, ten years. It seems that there's a cohort, no matter what is done, that just aren't going to be uh, appreciative of, of policing. And the solution is defund the police. And some people mean that literally. I, I, I'm going to add something to that, Brian, as well. Before uh, Chris Chris answers, I think part of the the biggest challenge, and I think the police police agencies have have largely failed. In this respect, they're they're turning the corner now. But I think what's really hurt them is historically that position of no comment. We know we don't need to share things with you. We know what we're doing. I think that carried into them carried that into the modern era where anybody can carry the narrative, right? You get on social media and you say, "Well, Chris stopped me because I'm whatever," right? Whatever they want to say, they can put that on social media and run with it. And I don't think police departments did a good enough job of countering that argument at least in the short term, they allowed it to run, right? And they benefited from the, the positive um, 
perception or relationship that they had with the public at the time. But over time, if you say something negative long enough, people start to believe it. And I think that's what's happened with, with social media. You've had every clown come out of the woodwork and say, well, that copper stopped me because uh, you know he didn't like me. It, they don't mention the fact that he was doing 40 over the speed limit, right? Or he did a left turn with, with no signal and almost hit somebody. Like that's that's the that's the piece I think really hurt the the, uh, the police department, the media agents, the media side of it anyway. Yeah, okay. so I mean, I think the police had to evolve. Uh, so there was a want and a need to evolve. And I think they have, right? Um, yeah. You know, like Brian said, when it comes to training and, and the education part of it and, you know, everything else, the building your cultural competence and, and having hiring strategies to reflect your community and, and hiring and, you know, recruiting from un underrepresented, traditionally underrepresented groups in policing. So I think the bar keeps moving. In regards to the, the media part, uh, Luciano have been part of that in, in Toronto and Durham. And um, sometimes, again, you have to pick your battles yeah. and when you want to debate in social media. And, and you're not always going to win if you get into that debate, right? Yeah. So, yes, no comment is um, not good. Um, but also, in regards to that, I think the police have built their transparency yeah. over the last little while. And when it comes to you know, people that are anti-police or, you know, public trust, we all know it's, it's, it's eroded, public confidence has eroded in the police. And I think the, you know, the policing profession is working to making that better. The reality is, I don't know how far that bar is going to get moved, you know, yeah. the way things are. And, and you know, obviously we all know of incidents in, you know, Minneapolis when George Floyd is killed, right? And because of uh, our society and social media, um, you know, what what happened there happens here, right? Yeah. And then there's that people that have certain beliefs, uh, it now reinforces their beliefs. Look what happened. I knew the, the police in yep. the city are this. Well, look what happened there. I'm right. You know, so there's that reinforced uh, beliefs yes. of uh, people. And, and, you know, just the last point to that is that um, the community perception and reality is the same. So if they perceive something, um, it's it's as good as reality. So the police have to face that. You have to, you know, you can't get your back up. You have to um, continue to work on that engagement and that partnership tirelessly yeah. to make it better. And sometimes you're not going to make it better. Sometimes you're going to move it a bit. And there's some instance where you're going to move the bar a lot to make you know, community relations better, depending on which community you're dealing with. But it's a, you know, it's a constant uh, um, work to get better. Well, right? picking picking up on that, you know, constant work to be to get better. Sometimes you'll make progress. Sometimes you won't move the bar. We you talked about uh, the want and need to evolve. You know, police had to do it. They saw they had to do it. They've invested heavily in training and recruiting. Uh, underrepresented to underrepresented uh, segments of the community, technology and equipment, sort of to transition to your new life, okay? A lot of what happens on the streets happens in certain commercial buildings, shopping malls, the Eaton Center. You know, we've had gun violence in there. We've had theft and robberies in there. Big commercial buildings, I think, of uh, on the financial district, a couple of shootings in the downtown core, one actually one of the big bank towers. Um, or at least that's where the guy ended Started. up. Uh, yeah. yeah. And, and so, so really, as difficult as it's been for the police in this uh, to evolve, 
and to get it right, because you said no matter how hard we try, we're not always going to get it right. What about security? I mean, when you look at all the effort that's gone into policing, you know, when I look at my friends, I look at my wife, her her training resume, the policing is a culture of training. I don't think people believe it, you know, from the top right to the constable on the road. They're training all the time. There's all sorts of courses. I was just blown away when I saw what the average police officer had in their resume. What about security? If the police are having challenges, Chris, what are you doing as a security director? And you're in a very high profile, potentially challenging transient area of the city at the downtown core. What do you do? What are your thoughts? Uh, so first of all, Brian, you're right about the training. It's a, you know, it's it's constant training and it's it's great training that the police uh, receive. And, and you can justify that training because, um, you know, for the most part, you're investing in someone that's going to be there 30 years or longer and people you know um i know both of you uh left before that but you know the majority of police officers stay so the investment is worth it to make them better right mm -hmm. in in how they they police the their communities so it's worth that investment i think on the security side and you're right in the downtown core uh security is dealing with the exact same issues that the police are right and in this downtown core right now and and you know i haven't been here or spent time here for i would say coming on 15 years now it's changed right um there's a, a you know higher number of uh, people with mental health with addictions drug use uh, homelessness and those three come together you know that homeless person is the same person that's experiencing mental health challenges and have addictions or, or drug use, right? And they're not just in the peripheries of these properties. They're just not on the streets. They're coming into the buildings, right? Mm -hmm. um, and the security guards wearing a uniform, just like the police officer. So it's it's you know it's it's looked upon the same in how you're going to um, interact with these uh, these people and how to you know help them. Yeah. for the most part and 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 make things better and use support like the city of toronto streets to homes and and all those avenues to to help uh these people but the issue is the training is going to be a little different and again it's not a knock against the security industry but um you know and and i have to say i believe when it comes to uh wages or pay the pay scale for security it, they're severely underpaid yeah. And and that's been going on for a long time. And I'd like to see that change in my position. I'd like to see that change because um, I think that will help to retain people. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, it'll help to um, to attract uh, skill, talent, uh, people that want to be in the industry and want to make a difference. Uh, you know, from from what I've seen in the you know almost year that I've been here, um, you know, the turnover, a high rate of turnover, and it's alarming, right? You know, and mm -hmm. and uh many times it's an entry-level position many times it's uh you know it's a means to an end whether it's a paycheck just to make some money to pay for school or it's i'm in security because i want to go to policing special constable corrections so it's hard to keep that employee um you know in the industry so when you invest in training you know when you look at contract training how much do you invest in that training Right. And I know security companies, there's some very, really good security companies out there um, that are doing their best when it comes to that training. But there has to be a line of, 
how much training do I provide to these people? How long are they staying? Because it, there's a cost to it. There's a financial yeah. cost to it, right? So I think they're dealing with the same issues, um, but the challenge is that it um, it might be uh, n not uh, always the best trained people that are uh, dealing with it or the best people in the right place when it comes to if that makes sense. And again, it's not, you know, it's not something negative against the security industry. It just, it is what it is right yeah. now. I, th I think you're entirely right. And I would agree. I think that the, the salaries are really, really poor and there's no way, you know, the good quality security officers that are out there don't stay a long time because they do transition into policing or corrections or to something that has career pathing capabilities. And I think that's one of the great weaknesses. And you put it really well, Chris, I never thought of it like that, but you said a police officer is there for 25 or 30 years, you get a, a return on the investment. It's hard to invest when your turnover rate is like every three months or you know every six yeah. months you lose the guy. And, and then it's the chicken and the egg uh, discussion, you know, like this industry, has to really confront what the issues are. You can't, it, it can't raise the bar to the next level if you can't attract the right people, then hold them for more than six months at a time. And I think you're right, until that changes, uh, you're not gonna see change uh, or substantive change, but I think the markets might help. I think when you start seeing the same stressors happening in buildings that happen on the street and security officers ending on YouTube because someone videotaped an interaction, it's embarrassing for the corporation they work for. I think there'll be a, a realization that we have to rethink this model because the model in place now is the old model that existed 30, 40 years ago. The night watchman just sits there and does nothing. Security is so much more than that, but salaries other than inflation have not changed. They they haven't kept up. It is ridiculous. You know, you could make more money and have better benefits at Tim Hortons than protecting a building worth a billion dollars in downtown Toronto. Yeah, and that's what happens with the uh, with the minimum wage going up. It makes it more difficult to retain what little uh, you know resources are willing to work for that for that level of pay. Um, I, I recall somewhere I can't remember if one of our uh, security providers, Brian, that we know well. Uh, I think one time they said that the average. Uh, person or, or employee, they expected to retain them for anywhere from six months, which was typical, to two years. You'd be lucky to have them for two years. So you really don't have much of a an ROI, a time span for that ROI to develop. Um, so that's that's uh, interesting. But, but look, if I could just throw in, that's a good point. That's one way of looking at the ROI. But the other way of looking at ROI on a two-year tenure is that that guard is going to keep you out of the news. That guard is going to keep your site from doing something stupid that causes demonstrations or people to say, hey, they're a bunch of racists or they're just closed minded people. So that's another ROI that you've got to look at. But we seem to focus on the other thing that he's only here for two years, so don't invest in the training. But to what cost? At, at what risk? At what expense? Well, then, then we get back into that chicken and egg argument, right? The, yeah. the clients, you get what you pay for, and they don't yeah. want to pay for much, and you don't have much funding to, to be able to. I mean, at the end of the day, they're there to make money. Even the security providers, they can't just throw money out the yeah. window just to make make you happy. Well, Chris, you know? Chris I'm sorry. I just, Chris, uh, what have you noticed? I mean, you you come from an environment where you guys are laser focused on the mission and you try really hard and you bring that experience and skill set to the private sector. And I'm not asking you to talk about your employer, but what are your observations about the private sector and their seriousness uh, at fulfilling the mission? Or are they, are they even aware of the, what the mission is? Yeah, I think the, the challenge is, um, you know, that it, for, for, for instance, contract security, right? Uh, 
you know, you want that provider to, to or the people that work for that provider to um, feel they belong in your buildings and feel they have some ownership and that accountability of, um, I may not be an employee of that property management company, but I'm representing that company. And you're right, Brian, they're, they're, they're client facing, they're tenant facing, they're patron facing. They're the first people you see when you come into these spaces and they even stand out because they're wearing uniform and people see them. So their, their, their performance, their conduct, um, all comes into play by everyone sees them. The eyes are on them, you know, at all times. Right. So there is a certain level of performance that you will need um, from those security guards, right? And and like I said, I think for the most part, um, you know, we need to raise the the bar when it comes to uh, the pay scale. And and Luch, you're right. The clients like myself have to realize that when you're looking for um, a security provider, it's not about price, because you want to assume or believe that the more you pay, the better quality you're going to get. And I believe that, right? So yeah. I've raised uh, the pay rates at all the properties that I, you know, since I've been here because, um, you know, of the expectations, right? You know, the key performance indicators, uh, what you're holding that security provider accountable for, right? Yeah. When it comes to the contract. So I think the contract itself and what you're looking for when it comes to measurements, you know, for that, cost benefit or the ROI as you talk about which is is more important um, but that pay skill has to move up right because uh, you're right one Brian one um, negative interaction could cost you uh, if not financially uh, reputationally mm -hmm. and when it comes to property management uh, reputation is is critical Everything. when it comes yeah. to you wanting patrons to come into your space you want more tenants whether it's retail or office tenants is that you take a hit in your reputation you know someone's going ac across the street to the other property management yeah. that's offering that office space or that retail space so security is so vital in helping to protect uh your assets and i mean your intangible assets when it comes to your reputation so you need that you need the professionalism you need that level of service and you have to demand that level of service and have a good partnership you know with uh with that contract security and that's what i'm hoping to build and continue to build every day is a good partnership you know with the with the company that's providing security for us you know it's um uh, the uh, all the elements of the property management world you know from cleaning to mechanical to janitorial to security they're all important but i've always maintained that if cleaning has a bad day and they don't clean your suite it's not the same as security having a bad day and they're not protecting the parking garage and someone gets robbed or mugged. I mean, the consequences are potentially so much greater. So I'm not saying security is more important than anything else, but it seems that security, certainly in the property management world, doesn't get the, the recognition they deserve. You know, I'm not saying put more into security, but they get even less than everyone else, which makes it a challenge, a challenge for professionals like yourself and Luch to run programs and run them successfully. Yeah, and the only thing I wanted to add on that, uh, Brian, was uh, you know to Chris's comments. It's not a, it, it, as we've talked about plenty of times. It's not just the client side, right? There's the whole contractor side as well. That you know, even when you're prepared to pay more, there's a lot of contractors that just can't produce the product that you're looking for either. Uh, they say they'll they'll be able to, but you'll get that same $14 an hour guard, and except you're paying them $20, no change, and sort of starts to 
that self-fulfilling prophecy of why am I paying for this guy? Like they can't yeah. even produce it. So the, the industry as a whole, I think, has a lot of introspective issues that they need to really start to revisit and and uh, and look at uh, in changing how they they run business. Um, Chris, I, I ask you a quick question on um, a model for security that, you know, it's big in Europe. We don't see it here much. But do you think there's a place, especially now with a lot of budget constraints on police departments, um, you know, cutbacks, defund the police in, in certain areas? Um, is there a place for a middle ground there for a special, I don't want to say special constable, but if you go to Europe, there's security guards that are just that much more professional. They really are, they are able to make a career out of it. And they don't do, you know, the gun calls, but they'll do the stuff that takes up police time that they can do. Go and take B&E reports or, you know, traffic controls, things like that. Is there a place for that? I know they've talked about it in Toronto often, but it always ends up going away. What are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, in, in my mind, uh, I want to make sure that the security industry becomes more professional. And part of being more professional is being able to adapt and get better, like the policing industry when it comes to training and, you know, education equipment, to be able to look after the property that you've been put in a position to look after when it comes to providing, you know, safe, secure, healthy, vibrant environment for for everyone in that property. So I know, I think you're referring to Luch in the States, there's a lot of gated communities where yeah. it, you know, they're being policed uh, by, by security, whether it's, you know, different uh, status, like a special constable, yeah. but they're armed security and they're dealing with the issues. And when they reach out to the police, um, you know, it's the last resort or, or whatever, but they are providing policing in essence for that community. Um, I think, that model has to work here also because, you know, as police budgets keep going up, yeah. um, numbers of police officers go down. Um, policing has become very complex when it comes to investigating certain things, um, cyber crimes, uh, you know, the growing human trafficking yeah. industry and, and all the other crimes that uh, the police are dealing with. And, and if you notice over the years, if the police, uh, had a capacity for, say, Toronto had 5,000 or 5,500 police officers. You know, policing is getting busier, more complex, but those numbers have gone down. And not only have they gone down, mm -hmm. but they've had to find from within um, to build units like human trafficking units and domestic violence units and, and gun and gangs units. And, and it wasn't, you know, police services boards and cities adding to the numbers saying, okay, we'll give you more police officers. It's, it was basically, here's your budget, make this work from within. And what that, what happens with that is it thins out the front line and yeah. it thins out the response. And, you know, I remember when I started Brian back in the, in the days, how many people were in that parade room for our briefing compared to how many police officers that are working frontline patrol now. Mm -hmm. Right. So in saying all that, um, you know, the police aren't always coming, yeah. right? A 911 call or an emergency call changes now. The bar changes in regards to what they're coming for, right? Um, a non-emergency call, you're going to be waiting for a while for police response because they're busy. They're, they're dealing with priority calls. Um, and now there's online reporting. So now you're not even going to see a police officer. So I think the security industry in Canada and Ontario has to build that capacity from within. You know, and I know in the properties we're at, the training is the escalation 
Um, you know, they have your use of force options, right? But it's last resort, yeah. right? And arresting or apprehending someone is a last resort, whether it's for a criminal offense or trespassing, um, because now you're now dependent on the police to respond because you're supposed to advise them forthwith and they're the only ones that could release. So that's the last resort when it comes to that. So I think, uh, you know, the security industry really has to, um, to build that capacity to make sure that they're, uh, you know, privately policing, and I don't want to use that in a wrong way, the, their turf or the properties that they've been put in, in charge of, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, but but that is a great example because that that's an area where security could really do a lot more to alleviate the pressures on police officers. Things like the the homeless guy who's out front of the property. Like, why are we calling the police automatically? Which is what was going on at a lot of properties that I used to to take uh, to to oversee. Um, another good example, Chris, I would say, you know, like protests, right? Automatic call to the police. Well, why? Are, you know, what kind of protest is it? Are they being peaceful? Are they compliant? Is there any risk to public safety? If all those things are checked off, then why are we putting the stress on police officers to come down and oversee something that doesn't really need to be to be overseen? So I think to your point, better trained guards are, are going to be able to better manage those situations and assess the risks before they make that phone call to the police and, you know, tie up four or five cars unnecessarily. I just want to add to what you're both saying is I think that one of the challenges security has or hurdles security has to overcome is unlike the police, there, there isn't effective oversight in the security yeah. world. There isn't oversight at the property level, even with trained supervisors. There isn't a regulatory body like the police have a police service board and there's the uh, the provincial government and their oversight mechanism. Security is and I know, Chris, when you said the word private policing, because I've used that term a lot, but you're a little bit hesitant because the challenge is that as we take on more responsibility, there has to be oversight, proper oversight, effective oversight, maybe at the provincial level, municipal level, maybe uh, 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 subsequent to the local police service board. But without that, security can't take on more responsibility because they're not going to have the trust of the public. They're just going to be a bunch of vigilantes that are not controlled. And that's one of the challenges that we have to overcome on the security side. I think police have oversight up to yinging right now from <laughs> civilian review committees, internal professional standards, legislative, uh, civilian police service boards. But security has nothing. Yeah. Just the owner of the company or, or, or the management team of the company. I think that's one of the things holding us back and getting us into the 21st century. And with that, I'm looking at the clock, Brian. <laughs> we're going to move to close this episode off. Oh, jeez. Um, I did want to say, I mean, when you were policing, they only had two courses, right? Horseback riding and the tablet riding with the stone. Is that right? You talking to Chris? Or, talking? <laughs> I think he's talking to you, Brian. I think it was when you were patrolling the saloons back in the, the heyday there. Well, walkie-talkies. the liquor license act. Walkie-talkies are just being investigated, but we use, or portables, but we use smoke signals quite effectively. Oh, good. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> All right, so let's uh, close up with the uh, closing comments. Uh, we're going to turn it over to Chris first as our guest. Uh, you know, thanks for having me on, guys. I appreciate it. And, uh, you know, now in my new world, as we talked about, I'm going to continue working on making, you know, the security industry more professional uh, so we can attract the right people to, uh, you know, to do the job. And Luciana, you mentioned earlier about uh you know security companies are saying 
you know, we're going to give you these quality people. But the reality is with that turnover, it's hard to, uh, you know, that box kind of gets empty pretty quick when it comes to trying to bring that same level or a higher level of per performance from, you know, your security guards that you're, you're bringing to property. So I think it's just continue working on the training, the education, the equipment, and just being relentless in, in making the industry more professional and, and attracting those people to come and want to work here. And some people uh, making a career, you know, actually looking at security as a career, not a means to the end. Like I said, I'm here because uh, I want to go to corrections or policing or, or wherever I, you know, I want to go that, you know, I want to build a career here. I want to be a professional security person and build my way up through an organization to become a manager, director, Mm -hmm. or or whatever so uh for the policing side like i said earlier uh my heart is still with policing and i i look at all the challenges that uh you know policing face these days and and uh, i'm glad i'm not there because uh they are you know you know some big challenges and how do we you know you know we i say we but how does policing become better uh and building that public trust, building that confidence, because the gap just seems to keep increasingly yep. big and then how to get it back. And, and I think what can't happen on the police side is that you can't have the leadership or anywhere in your organization now having an apathy for, well, we're doing our best and look what's happening and we're gonna give up. Like it, you have to be, uh, you know, as relentless in the security industry, you have to be as relentless in policing to keep making things better, building those bridges with communities and those diverse communities and working with different groups, you know, and, and you know, Black Lives Matter and, and Blue yeah. Lives Matter and All Lives Matter and all those other pieces that are now part of policing is that on the policing side, you can't give up because uh, you, you have to get better because you can't be effective in policing your community if you don't have that public trust and confidence, you really can't. So I, I just want to thank Chris, Deputy Chief uh, Fernandez. You're a good friend. Uh, you've been a great uh, uh, ambassador of the Toronto Police and Durham Regional Police. Uh, some of the, uh, I think, most successful partnerships that Toronto Police have enjoyed with the private security sector, uh, many of them have been under your leadership or command. And uh, I, I think we need to have more of these type of relationships that are not built on need but they're premised on trust and respect because you know my boss your chief could say you've got to play with brian and brian's got to play with chris but if we don't like each other respect each other trust each other we're not going to succeed and i just want to thank you chris for the you know almost 20 years i guess that we've known each other you've been a great uh, partner and friend and ambassador and you've always been very respectful to us on the security side of the fence so thank you that concludes this podcast. We hope you enjoyed listening and will join us in a couple of weeks for our latest episode. Please remember to like and follow us on our sponsor's webpage, brianclayman.com, where you can leave us your comments and suggest topics you'd like to hear about in future episodes. Until next time, thanks for listening and don't forget to protect your assets.